this is Mike Van Meter, and welcome to the Recovery is Possible podcast. I want to thank you for joining me today, and you can reach us at our Facebook site, which is also called Recovery is Possible, or our website, which is vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. This podcast exists to educate the public about addiction, remove the stigma associated with addiction, and offer help and support to those suffering from addiction. I'd like to introduce you also to our sponsor, which is FHE Health, and uh, FHE Health is a substance abuse and mental health treatment center specializing in the treatment for first responders' needs, including PTSD, anxiety, and substance use. So take the first steps to a better life today by visiting FHEHealth.com. And today, I would like to introduce you to my good friend, Chaplain Ron Perkins, who's down in Florida. And he actually does work with our sponsor, which is FHE Health. And he's uh, down there working with a program called Public Safety Chaplaincy Incorporated. He's a senior chaplain there. And I'd like to talk to him about uh, the work that he's doing with uh, our first responders and the not only substance abuse, but mental health issues, PTSD, suicide, uh, all of those different issues that certainly affect this profession. But let's face it, it's affecting the rest of the country as well. Before I came on this program, I was watching the news a little bit, and you know we're, we're kind of doing 2021 in a review, and they were discussing a, a lot of the issues that we're starting to notice creeping up, affecting our society as a result of the lockdowns, uh, COVID-19, and amidst the the debate as to what we should do as a nation, uh, we're also starting to be confronted with a lot of unexpected issues uh, like suicide, like substance abuse, like mental health issues and those types of things. And so I wanted to bring Ron on and talk to him about you know, what he's seeing in this profession and society at large, and, and let's talk about what we can do to uh, help with this problem. But first, I'll bring Ron on. He can uh, talk to you a little bit about his background and how we came to where we are today. So with that, Ron, thanks for coming on the program. You're welcome, Mike. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to your listeners today. Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a bit about yourself and how you came into this type of work. <laughs> well, I've, I've been in and around healthcare all my life. I started out uh, a long time ago at age 16, working on ambulances in central New York, uh, back in the day when all you needed was a, a Red Cross first aid card, and that made you a, quote, ambulance attendant. And now I'm coming first full circle to the end of my third career, if you will. Uh, let me say, God willing, it's it's my last career, uh, which is back kind of in the EMS and public safety uh, arena. So uh, following uh, high school, I went to nursing school. I was a registered nurse for a long time. Spent four years on active duty in the Navy Nurse Corps, again, primarily in emergency services. Uh, when I got out, I ended up in nursing administration, hospital administration. I've been a healthcare entrepreneur, spent some time in general business, and about 10 years ago, uh, came back into EMS uh, through the chaplaincy program. I had uh, been ordained a deacon and then a, a priest in the Orthodox Catholic faith tradition and felt a, a strong calling to people in the emergency services and started out as a volunteer chaplain uh, with uh, the Fort Lauderdale Police Department, where I've been for 12 years and I've been the senior chaplain there now for about, I guess, six years. Um, Public Safety Chaplaincy is a nonprofit 501c3 uh, charitable con- uh, organization that contracts with cities and municipalities and independent departments for either consulting services, education and training uh, in uh, chaplaincy services, or actual provision of chaplaincy programs. And right now, I'm contracted with uh, two police departments and uh, three fire departments in Broward County, Florida, representing uh, counting 
our uh, sworn and uh, civilian staff, their family members, and our retirees and their families. It's about a congregation of 8,000 people uh, that we, we provide services for. Mm. Okay. What What is, would you say, primarily is the, what do you get called out for primarily? What's the big issue right now? Well, as you, as you were uh, speaking in the lead-in, I, I was thinking about, uh, in most cases, when someone calls on a chaplain, uh, as we just had a, a major uh, multiple casualty incident on Monday here in, in Broward County, they're usually not a good day. It's usually somebody's worst day, whether it's a civilian that's involved in the situation or one of our law enforcement officers or, or firefighters. So any time that uh, certainly a firefighter or law enforcement officer is injured or seriously uh, ill within my department, I'm, I'm called on for that. I respond to uh, scenes where there's an enhanced danger to our uniformed personnel on scene, and we stay there. Our, the purpose of chaplaincy really is a ministry of presence. It is a faith-friendly service that provides support on scene and following after action relative to critical incident stress management and other kinds of things that we do uh, during and, and after uh, critical incidents. But um, primarily, we're there to provide that ministry of presence, to provide that support uh, on scenes and following scenes in the firehouses and, and the police stations. Mm, okay. And so you're, you're called out to the critical incidents, correct? Correct. We're, yeah, we're actually called out um, for everything from um, homicides to suicides to uh, injuries, uh, God forbid, line of duty deaths, those kinds of serious incidents, but also on standby for SWAT callouts and things like that or uh, major events, uh, multiple casualty uh, situations. <clears throat> Again, any time where there's going to be an increased stress level on either the uh, the people involved in the situation or our firefighters or law enforcement officers. Yeah, because, you know, I've, I've often talked about this with people, and I know when I go out into the public and I do presentations, I try to describe what it's like to be a first responder. You know, my background, I'd, I'd been in corrections. I was a police officer, a city police officer, and then an FBI agent for about 21 years and had been in the military, too. And the military is very, very difficult. Uh, absolutely, very, very difficult. But I will mm -hmm. one one of the differences between being a first responder and being in the military is that, generally speaking, the military, the way that it's set up today, you go on deployments and you you will you can see horrific things while you're on deployment. But it's it's that that's for a period of time, um, usually six months. It could be a bit longer than that, but generally six months. Um, and then you come back and you do have a period of rest. The difference with a first responder is there's no deployment period. Your deployment period is your career, whether that be 20 years, mm -hmm. 30 years, whatever the case may be. And there's, there's no break. It's, <clears throat> it's death and destruction for 20 to 30 years. And you just touched on something that I think is very important. And I think many people in the public don't ever really think about this part of it. And that is that when you call a first responder, you're dialing 911 and you and you have whether it's police fire EMT whoever show up at your house or where wherever you happen to be think of what it would take for you to dial 911 that's going to be of all the days in your life that you're going to remember that's going to be one of those days that that when you're a very old person and you're talking to the kid the grandkids and you tell the story you're going to be able to rem tell that story in detail because it's going to be that traumatic um 
that's how it affected your life if you're the one calling 911. So imagine you will, if you will, if you're in a prof- in a profession where your job is to respond to those calls. So it's somebody else's big day that they will remember for the rest of their lives and you're experiencing it with them. But multiply that, you know, depending on where you work and the, the business of the the, you know, I worked in Washington DC, a big city. Uh, I would re- re- easily a dozen 911 if not more calls per day. Now, mm-hmm. compound that tour, you know, over a number of years, what that does to a person. And so you've been able to see that firsthand, the devastating effects that that has on that particular uh, employee, haven't you? You sure can. And, uh, you know, you talk about traumatic events in a, in a normal civilian's life history. We typically, as, as non-emergency response personnel, will have three to five traumatic events in our entire lifetime, a loss of a, a loved one. Um, a divorce, a, uh, a critical in, uh, injury or illness that's life-threatening. That'll happen to us maybe three to five times over our entire life. A law enforcement officer or a firefighter in a department as busy as, as they are here in, in Broward County, that could be a shift. That could be a 12-hour shift. That was just a Monday. <laughs> that was yeah, just exactly. a Monday. I mean, that, that's one shift. Yeah. And they don't have a choice about their exposure. I mean, they respond to that 911 call. They go in. They're exposed to what they see, what they hear, what they smell, um, and they and and that enters their their soul and their their conscience. And they can't just walk away from that cumulative stress. I don't think without some help. No. And and that's where behavioral health access programs come in. You know, obviously, I represent the chaplaincy side of behavioral health access programs, but. Uh, there's also the peer support side, the clinician side, the mental health professionals, the critical incident stress management team responses. So chaplaincy is one part. I think it's an important part. And it's, it's the, the, the one part that is true, uh, truly faith friendly. And I differentiate that when I start talking about chaplaincy in, in traumatic incidents, because not everyone, particularly in law enforcement, and fire rescue are necessarily believers or follow a specific faith tradition. Mm. And I feel strongly that our job as chaplains, regardless of our personal faith traditions, is not to proselytize, not to preach, but to be available and to listen to them for people of all faith traditions and none. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important to point out on, on our side of what we do as, as chaplains. Um, yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. And now let me ask you this. So, uh, are in, in your work, do you have people that are calling you? Um, are you, are you let me rephrase this. Are, do you also serve uh, a bit of an EAP or employee assistance program role? In other words, I, could I call you if I was with Broward County? Could I call you if I was struggling with an issue without a critical incident associated with it? Absolutely. Uh, we take care of and actually have one-on-one interaction with somewhere between 200 and three, 250 and 300 firefighters, paramedics, communications people, law enforcement people a month within our organization and the departments we take care of. And of that, uh, many of them are self-directed, uh, reaching out from them to us. And we, we serve kind of as an assessment uh, tool and an opportunity to refer them to resources as, as we think they need them. Um, obviously, all the departments I work with have very active EAP programs. But more importantly, the people that participate through the EAP program have, in the case of the clinicians, as an example, and peer support and chaplaincy, as well as CISM, have all gone through 
um, cultural education and professional education on how to interact with law enforcement officers and firefighters and people within the public safety community. And I think that's also very, very important that we're hooking people up with resources. And you mentioned FHE, we, we've sent uh, several um, firefighters and law enforcement officers uh, to them for, for care. And it's nice to have those resources that are fully vetted and that have a, a program specifically for public safety personnel. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you, what's the big thing that, that if you were to look at the lay of the land and the type of the work that you're you're doing right now, what's the big issue out there? I think the big issue is the amount of stress that our firefighters and law enforcement officers have gone through over the last two years. And unfortunately, with the, the, the surge of the Omicron uh, COVID-19 right now, we're seeing uh, public safety departments running at 10 and 20 and 25 percent uh, understaffing, undermanning, under mm. uh, understaffing because of the number of positives within our public safety community. So that just adds stress going into a new year where we thought maybe some of this was behind us. So the, the life of a law enforcement officer and uh, a firefighter has changed tremendously over the last two years. On the, the, the law enforcement side, not only do you have COVID and everything else, but you have the negativity uh, that has resulted from some of the, the publicity that law enforcement in general and in specific cases have received. Mm-hmm. It's a tough time to be a police officer out there right now. And on the fire side, firefighters in our country, for the most part, work 24 hours on and 48 hours off, not counting maybe overtime shifts that the details they might run in between. <clears throat> but they're used to at the end of the 24 hours to go home and have the house to themselves. Mom is probably out working or dad's out working. Uh, the kids are off to school. And the last couple of years with this, um, I guess, homeschooling and homeboundness, if you will, as a result of, of um, the COVID virus, uh, life is different when they come home off shift. Now the house is noisy. The house is crowded. The kids are there. Mom or dad are working from home. Uh, and they still have to have some time to rest and recuperate and get ready for their next shift. So all of those stressors have just continued to build on top of the, the, the traumatic events that they witness every day they're on shift. Well, have you seen an increase in substance abuse as a result of this? And, and really kind of manifestations of mental health uh, are compounding mental health issues. Have you seen a, a, a driving or spike of that? I, I think that we have seen an increase in maybe awareness of the impact of all this negativity within their lives are beginning to show. And and the addictions that we're seeing are not just uh, the chemical dependency. It used to be basically drugs and alcohol. Now you've got things like gambling, pornography, um, eating disorders, all kinds of other kinds of sequelae, or if you will, to the, the, the chronic stress that they're under. So yes, I definitely think that uh, dependency issues have, have increased. Uh, and it's really important that we respond to that with enough resources and streamlined referral programs. And that's one of the things in Broward County uh, that we have done uh, over the last uh, four or five years is build the behavioral health access program model and to include law enforcement, to include in, in one case in Broward County, all city employees having access to the same panel of chaplains, uh, peer support people from within their department, as well as uh, vetted clinicians, vetted treatment centers, CISM 
uh, call out teams and those kinds of things. So I, I think it's really important that as the stress increases, that we ramp up the resource availability. <laughs> and the other thing that, that we have not talked about before is not only do we respond to these critical incidents and emergency situations, but we invest a great deal of time in building relationships. The time to uh, build a relationship is not during the critical event. Yeah. The time to build a relationship is working, again, side by side with the firefighters and the law enforcement officers on ride-along, station visits, um, social events, uh, just being with them on the fire ground or on the crime scene. And by the time that you've done enough of that, you have a relationship that they're more open to have conversations. It's funny, I, I have two offices, physical offices. I very seldom see a police officer or firefighter in my office. We end up having these more in-depth conversations during a ride-along in a, in a patrol car or sitting on the back bumper of a, an engine in the equipment bay um, or around the kitchen table with a group of guys and gals. Um, so it's a much more informal kind of conversation, particularly at the beginning. And then we can segregate that out and, and look at various referral patterns and the kinds of resources that they might need. Yeah, uh, you're absolutely correct. Um, and I think if, if you're listening and, and you're in uh, one of these professions and you're in the helping business, if you're an EAP counselor, chaplain, or uh, a peer of some sort, you got to get out. Uh, the The day of the crisis is not the time to get to know that other person. Because I know, you know, coming into recovery, you know, how awkward it feels to be sitting down with someone that you've never met before, that doesn't know anything about you, you don't know anything about them, and now you're going to start pouring out your deepest, darkest, darkest secrets. And, right. you know, let's face it, if particularly if you're talking about an addiction issue, and, and you mentioned the uptick in uh, pornography, gambling, things like that. I mean, let's face it, it's tough enough to talk to um, a friend of yours about uh, your alcohol problem or your prescription pill problem. Now imagine mm -hmm. if that now the subject is sex sexual uh, you know, mm -hmm. pornography issue. <laughs> I think that would be a very difficult conversation to have with anyone, period, uh, even your best friend. But certainly to have that discussion with someone that you can, you consider a uh, complete stranger and not someone you, you've dealt, developed any trust with, that, that would be very, very difficult, if not impossible. So you raise a very good point in that, that you have to build those relationships ahead of time. So when that day, that big day happens, um, it's just going to be that much easier to um, have that conversation. Right. Well, and we found that out locally here on, um, on Ash Wednesday, on February 14th of 2018. Uh, when Marjorie Stoneman Douglas uh, shooting occurred, yeah. we had done the clinician training program about 10 months prior to that incident. And we had done the same thing with our, not only our CISM team, but really broad chaplaincy, peer support, the clinicians and CISM as a team together about 10 or 12 months before um, that school shooting occurred. So that at the time it occurred, the resources were physically present and able to organize the care of those exposed to that incident during, immediately after, and continue now, what is it, um, four years later, mm -hmm. um, uh, almost, yeah, almost four years later, um, continuing to provide care for those that were exposed on the fire ground that day. Mm. 
Yeah, that was a tough. So were you, you? So you were involved in that particular incident, correct? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I was I was on the ground in about 22 minutes from from the time the incident got called, and it was almost a year to the date that we had the Fort Lauderdale airport shooting uh, on January 6th of 17. Um, that was probably the first call out of that kind of nature that we had within public safety chaplaincy's history was um, during the uh, Fort Lauderdale Hollywood uh, International Airport shooting on, on the 6th of January of 17, followed, of course, then a year later on February 14th with MSD. And then this year we had the, the catastrophe at Surfside with the condom flaps. Oh, so that, those are that's the right. Oh, so you're invo- you were involved yeah. in that as well. I, I was involved in all of those, as, as were some of our other chaplains. Um, and the whole uh, eight, uh, behavioral health access team was involved in all of those incidents before, during, and continue to be uh, continue to be afterwards. Um, so it's um, those are the kinds of things on a mass casualty situation that we get involved with that, that continue to cause stress and, and issues long term to our firefighters and law enforcement officers that are exposed in that situation. Because again, what they see, hear, and smell stays with them. Oh, yeah. You can go back, I guarantee you, to calls you've had uh, back when you were a city police officer uh, very specifically and, and described in detail what was in the room, the condition of the room, um, who said what to whom. I mean, it, it's amazing how much we retain, and it doesn't take much to recall those negative experiences. Literally, a smell can do it. Um, and you, you walk in and you okay, okay, I know that there's a, a deceased person here in this room, and I need to find that person. So it, it tr- just triggers the, the trauma that you've been through in the past. So it's important that, that we recognize that in, in the, the care team, if you will, um, be sh- to be sure that we're looking out for signs and symptoms of, of things developing post-incident. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier the, the vetting of the, the providers, and I think that that's important yes. too. And I, I know in the work that I'm doing in uh, my graduate program and the internship where I'm at. Now, the internship that I have done in the practicum it is not specifically with first responders. It's the general public. And I've already, you know, now keep in mind, I coming from this profession and coming into the counseling world and now doing work with the general public, you know, I've spent many years with, with first responders and military, but now working with the general public, it became apparent to me very quickly that my world that I've been in in the last 30 years is very different than the world that, that these patients are are coming from. Um, I have found that the the things that, uh, you, know, con, you know, conversations, the humor, I mean, let's just, let's just face it, the, the humor <laughs> that uh, first responders and military folks uh, use, the sort of the dark humor, the joking. The, well, it's a coping skill. It is. It's a coping skill, but it becomes like your norm when you're, you're in that, um, yes. when you're in that profession. And there would be nothing that would uh, be a bigger turnoff to me to come into a counseling situation as a patient and start talking to a counselor and start talking about my day. And by the way, this has happened to me where I've walked in and I've started talking about my, you know, my day, what my life is like. And just to have the the counselor like, oh, hey, let's not talk about that. That's inappropriate. Uh, uh, hey, we don't, we don't joke about those times. You know, what kind of, you know, what kind of humor is that? And I, and here I am just thinking, you know, like, are you kidding me? Here I am telling you about my, all I'm doing is telling you about my day and you, you want to deflect away from that conversation. Now in a counseling situation, if you're a first responder and that's what you run into, that's very, uh, I think that's 
going to be pretty much the end of your relationship with that counselor. Oh, it's, it's so a it's very important. short counseling session. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you won't go back. Uh, you won't go back for no. a second session, that's for sure. Well, that's why I think it's so important that organizations have vetting mechanisms in place. And again, that, that started here for, for us in, in, in Broward County uh, about five years ago, where we had feedback from uh, firefighters and officers that we were referring to therapists coming back with these horror stories of, oh, well, you know, let me look at the scar. Let me, uh, uh, I don't understand, you know, why they're, you know, why you're talking about this shift business and 24 on and 48 off. It sounds easy. All you do is, you know, sleep and respond to a few calls um, or in a, in a police situation. Well, it's just a routine traffic stop, which is, we all know is no such thing. No, um, so. <laughs> a routine traffic stop is going to get you killed. Oh, exactly. Goodness, that, yeah. That's exactly right. And so it's important that the therapists have some cultural awareness and, and, and they get it through education. It doesn't just come to them. Very few of them actually have been firefighters or law enforcement right. officers. We have some, but very few. Uh, so it's important that we have some clinical competency, uh, education available to them and let them experience what it's like to get certified within our, our program on the, the clinical response team, which are, are licensed mental health professionals, either uh, at the master's or doctoral level. Um, they have to go through a, a, a two day course within that they do very specific skills uh, development and exposure to a real time uh, simulations of fires, rescues, extrications, traffic stops, clearing houses, those kinds of things. So they understand and, and they make it really very realistic. And then there's um, a, a, a specified number of hours and ride-alongs they have to do. They have to um, ride both with police and fire and go through this whole process. And after a period of three to four months, then we'll start sending patients to them and then we check references. So we get feedback on these before these folks before they actually go on our referral system. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that's, that's going to be important. It's very positive. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's it's going to be very very important. And I and I'll tell you because uh, I I will tell you that when I came into my program uh, that I'm in right now, I let me see how I can couch this. I to be honest with you have found a pretty negative. Um, impression of first responders in the in in the training and and for counselors that there are very few people that understand the first responder community and i i am the only in my program i am the only former first responder <laughs> that's in there and i hear things that i you know in the courses i'm taking in the discussions that we have uh i hear things that said about the police uh that police in particular over, over the last couple of years yes. that where i have to come back to the, the discussion and educate the other um sometimes students and sometimes even the professors that hey uh, you you completely misunderstand this and and let me tell you uh this side of the story you're hearing one side of the story you're not hearing the other side of the story and uh I, again, I sit and I think to myself, oh my goodness, if I was a patient walking into a session and, and I heard any of these comments being made, it would be very, very detrimental to the counseling relationship. And in fact, it would end, it, as far as I'm concerned, it would, it would end the counseling relationship. And it would be so negative that this individual likely would never go back to any other counselor. And I think that it's important to have more people like us in this profession, in the counseling profession, so people that are in the first responder community have somebody to go to. So if you're listening to this podcast and you're 
considering um, going into counseling as a profession, you know, reach out to me, reach out to uh, Chaplain Ron, and, and and let's have a discussion about this. Because one of my takeaways in this whole program is we need more people like us in this profession, so people like us have people to go to. Absolutely, I agree. Um, so, do you? Um, uh, yeah, I mean, do you? Would you recommend that? I mean, are you soliciting people to come into your organization as peer? I should ask you this. Does your organization have um, kind of a wider peer sort of uh, network or are they all people in your, where this is a full-time position with them? Very, very few of us are doing this full-time. Most chaplains in fire departments and police departments or law enforcement organizations are volunteers. Yeah. Uh, And they're usually pastors, rabbis, um, imams, what have you, um, that have churches or houses of worship that they're affiliated with. Uh, this is this is unique. We're more on a level of, say, in New York City or Chicago, L.A., Orlando, Atlanta, that have Detroit, that have full-time chaplains within the department. Um, they may also have a church or a, a house of worship that they're affiliated with, but they're doing this more or less full-time. Uh, most smaller departments um, don't have these kinds of resources available on the chaplaincy side. We're finding uh, both the um, FOP and the IAFF are much more oriented today towards peer support training mm-hmm. and availability of peer support people, which are act- active duty or retired police officers and firefighters. And that has been very, very important. Um, the, the chaplains, uh, again, oftentimes are doing this kind of as a part-time uh, service and go out to do, you know, whether it be a death notification or a, um, a response to an emergency or uh, more likely a, a, a promotional ceremony or something like that that they're involved with. They're usually not as embedded as we are to do this as a full-time job. That's um, just a different way of doing it. I, I like the way we're doing it and I like the way that we're doing it kind of dual-hatted in that um, I've been uh, through the training programs for both the Federation of Fire Chaplains and the International Conference of Police Chaplains. Um, although they're very similar, there are differences, as you know, in the culture between those kinds of organizations. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the core competencies uh, from a chaplaincy standpoint are essentially the same. But I think it's important that people that, that do what I do uh, use those uh, professional associations, those national or international organizations such as the ICPC to receive the the training that they need very much like what you're going through as a an, an intern um, uh, or into your fellowship when you finish your your degree to um, to have that experience to to have the, the the clinical training so to speak to be able to provide the services that that we're offering. Well, over the last you mentioned the last two years, what across the board? What are the things that you um, is it addiction? Is it suicide? Uh, is it both? What has what has changed over the last two years, and and or what are you seeing more of? I think stress, anxiety, disorders, um, a certain level of compassion fatigue. Frankly, uh, compassion fatigue, as you, as you know, is a reaction where um, you, you're less um, compassionate. You're you're um, less supportive, perhaps, of the people that you're taking care of. It's not that you don't care, but you've been so saturated with having to care and, and, and provide the, um, the support and, and the, the medical care or the, the law enforcement uh, within that community that perhaps you're, the edge of the caring side 
begins to drift off. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that I have seen. You've seen it in hospitals with the overloads in emergency rooms. Uh, and you've seen it uh, in ICUs and so forth in the, in the civilian world. And then we're also seeing it in, in law enforcement and, and fire rescue. So suicides in general, I, I believe, are up. Although it's interesting, firefighter suicides, which normally run equal to or, or above the number of line of duty deaths, um, have been dropping over wow. the last three years. So and I, I, I'll give a lot of credit to the International Association of Firefighters and their peer support model, as well as increased use of chaplains and clinicians and, and referring people out for CISM debriefs, because we've seen a decrease in um, suicides. In 19, we had 144 firefighter suicides, 126 in 20, and 77 in 21. Wow, okay, I did not know that. That's the first time I've heard that it's it's gone down. In uh, 2021, the number of of line-of-duty deaths within fire rescue was 136 firefighters and paramedics died as a result of what they're doing. And I say we only had 77 suicides. That's not not good. Any suicide's bad. But the the number is is greatly under the line-of-duty deaths. Now, I'm wondering, the, um, the statistics haven't been broken out between the number of the 136 line of duty deaths, um, how many of those were COVID related? We know all, all among the, um, the police line of duty deaths, I don't have the exact number uh, uh, for law enforcement officers, but I, I do know that uh, COVID is taking its, um, has taken its toll over the last two years in both mm-hmm. police and, and fire. Uh, and again, we're finding now going into 2022, thank goodness that the people aren't getting as ill and requiring long-term hospitalizations, ventilators, and the like, but they're still out of work. I mean, literally, you saw NYPDs uh, came out yesterday with a statement that, that over 20% of their, their police force is off due to COVID positivity and illness. And you take 20% of your workforce out, that makes it really hard on, on the 80% that are working. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So that, again, that just increases the stress. You're working longer hours, more exposure, less rest time. Sleep is a big deal. A lack of sleep. We found in, in uh, our local fire departments, as an example, pre-COVID, we were running one agency that I, I work with in the range of 150 calls a day. That dropped at the peak of the COVID epidemic down to about 75 a day. We're running 200 a day today. Mm. So, I mean, as we had that dip because nobody wanted to go to the hospital, right? Because everybody was afraid of the COVID in the hospitals. And so they, they didn't want to go. So now it has popped back up and it's gone way above what our norm was like in 2018. So we're seeing that that cycling up and that just again adds stress, uh, anxiety, uh, less sleep. Again, if the firefighters working 24 seven or 24 and 48 off uh, and maybe picking up a 12 hour detail or overtime in there uh, and the two days off, they're not sleeping very well. And when they're in the firehouse, even though they have private rooms and, you know, very comfortable stations in most cases, they still never really are deeply asleep because they're always waiting for those tones to go off. And our, our police departments are working more often 10 and 12 hour shifts. And in most departments, I think New York may be an example where they use two person um, uh, patrol cars, but in most of the country, it's one, one police officer to car. And so they're alone. Um, they're running calls the whole shift. There's no real downtime. And they go home and they're amped up and they have trouble sleeping. So sleep deprivation, I think, is going to be the 
from a clinical perspective, probably the biggest um, conversation we have going into 22 and, and later. I, I think the I think the suicide rate in the general population from the the suicidology studies that I, I've read over the last year, uh, they're predicting an increase 22, 23, and into 24 as a result of again the the uh, the trauma of COVID and the uh, isolation is. Uh, exposure that everyone has had through the, um, the the COVID cycles. So it'll depend somewhat, of course, on what happens with um, the new variants and how often that happens. But we've got a couple of tough years ahead of us. We're not out of the woods yet. Yeah. And that, so you were talking about fire departments. Now, is that the same with on the police side of the house or is it, are the numbers uh, different? Yeah. The, the numbers, the, the line of duty deaths are much higher. Uh, yeah. We lose almost a police officer a day to a line of duty death in the United States. Um, whether that be a shooting, a car wreck, um, you know, what, what have you, lots of different reasons. Um, but the line of duty death exposure within law enforcement is much greater than in, in fire rescue. <clears throat> so I think it's very similar in, in the, the behaviors that they exhibit and the symptoms and the, uh, the pathology that they have to deal with going forward. Now, does that include the, how about the numbers as far as suicides are concerned? Has that gone up, stayed the same, or gone down? It, it, it's it's down from its all-time high. It used to be twice, twice what the line of duty rate was. I think it's more like about 1.2, 1. 1.3. Mm. And I wonder if a lot of that has to do with uh, raising, I mean, there's really been a big campaign over the last few years to raise awareness of suicide. And I wonder if that has a lot to do with it. Oh, I, I think so. As I, I gave credit to the IASF on the peer support side, what we're finding on, on the law enforcement side, um, uh, my largest police department that, that I take care of hired a full-time police psychologist two years ago, and they, they just hired a, a second, uh, a master's level uh, licensed clinical uh, clinician who is a um, also a police officer. And she'll be working closely with our psychologist. So we're definitely seeing within the command staff, if you look at the uh, International Association of Police Chiefs and the, um, the Fire Chiefs Association, the International Association of Fire Chiefs, and you go to some of their conferences I have, you'll find uh, whole tracks on clinical awareness, whole tracks on wellness, suicide prevention, mental health, behavioral health, whatever they want to call it. <clears throat> and it, it, you go to their meetings. I attend every uh, Broward County uh, Fire Chiefs Association meeting uh, that we have on a monthly basis here. And there's always a time when we reflect on what's going on on the behavioral health side of the fire departments in Broward County. Mm. And every, every, we have um, our command staff meets every Monday um, within my police department. And we all, we go around the room, including the psychologist and myself, and report not on who we be taken care of, but on some of the things that we've encountered and trends that we're seeing on the behavioral health um, uh, components, whether it be from the chaplaincy perspective or the psychologist um, or the peer support person who's sitting there. And all of us serve also on the CISM team, so it's kind of, you know, you wear several hats. Yeah. Well, the, the yeah, I, I'm glad so that, that's the first time I've heard the numbers have been trending in the other direction, which is, is yeah. really good news. Really good news. It is. And I think it's, I think it's because we're doing a better job of being available. We're doing a better job of trying to drive down the stigma of yeah. self-disclosure, which is probably the biggest roadblock we have to carrying it even further. Uh, we're spending time now both at the state fire academies and in the police academies. I just uh, helped uh, our psychologist with a three-hour course 
uh, with 25 police cadets two weeks ago. Um, and they had three hours, which is more than they'd ever gotten before, uh, just on mental wellness and how to deal with the kinds of things that they're going to be exposed to. And some of, some of these young people were like right out of college, new, you know, new to the law enforcement for sure. And then we've had probably six or seven of them had been from big city police department, Chicago, LA, New York, um, Minnesota that have come down. Um, and some of them have said, this is the first time I've ever sat in a class and talked about mental health. Yeah, I, I know I never had it in my career. I, it never no. once in, in my career. Well, I bet it's I being taught at Quantico now. Uh, well, uh, to the National Academy, I, I don't know about yeah. on the new agent side, or uh, but I, I know to the police executives, there's, I helped create uh, Leading at Risk Employees, which, which is a course that talks about it, but that's to the police executives. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, it'll be interesting, and I'll try to find out what's being taught over to the new agents. Um, if, it, if it is, it's not going to be a whole lot. I can tell you that. Yeah. And uh, you run into that in a lot of academies. Um, you know, having been on the curriculum dev- development side, Mm-hmm. Down there at Quantico, and, and so I'm very familiar with what other agencies do too. The problem is when you have new recruits that come in, everybody in the agency feels that what they do is important and they want right. whatever it is that they do taught to the new recruits. You know, hey, this is important, so the new recruits need to have have this. And, you know, you add two hours there, two hours here, uh, you start adding that up, and you only have a certain amount of time that uh, people are in training, their, their initial training. And it, and it it adds up to be a lot, and I understand that. But this truly is something that needs to be added on. Um, and you need to front load mental health, wellness, addiction, those types of things, because I don't care who you are. If you enter this profession, you are going to be facing this, whether it's yourself or someone you work with. And and it has to be taught right right out of the right out of the shoot. It, right right in the very beginning of the profession. It's not something that should be an add-on course later on in a career because it may be too late by then. Uh, a lot of things yes. can be taught later on in a career, but I think taking care of yourself and then being able to spot the warning signs in people around you and being able to help or intervene on them is important in the beginning. Well, I think I think that is, is critical because suicide prevention intervention uh, is, is so, so important. And one of the things that, that we preach, if, if, <laughs> preach, teach, however, whatever term you want to use, uh, with all of our, our departments and all of our both sworns and civilian staff is to watch for changes in behavior. That's the number one thing that, 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 that we teach within suicide prevention and intervention is, is number one, watch for behavior changes. When you see behavior changes, if someone who is normally gregarious and sitting around the dining room table, you know, telling jokes and watching TV with the guys or, um, butting up when they're out on patrol or something all of a sudden becomes more reclusive. They're spending time in their, their bunk room or they're, they're not butting up on, on uh, watching traffic or whatever they're doing um, to just kind of catch up on things. And it can go the other way too. Someone who's normally kind of a reclusive, we had a suicide that, that I worked in, in Broward County a couple of years ago where literally the day before the incident happened, a normally reclusive individual became very out, outward going. And because he'd already made up his mind, he'd fixed his problem. He knew what he was going to do and he was friendly and outgoing. And, and all the guys kept saying, Oh, well, you know, so-and-so it was, it was a great shift. Um, he's telling us about uh, something going on in his personal life that he would never have shared before, but he was dead six hours later. Um, so 
what, what, what we really try to get people to do is recognize changes in behavior and then to confront those, to just ask the tough questions. Are, have you thought about hurting yourself? Do you have a plan? And, you know, I know that you've had several interviews with people that have, have stressed the same thing. Look, it is the best we have right now, particularly for lay people in the field, that you need to confront it. And then, you know, after 9 11, uh, we had all these signs and this whole publicity about see something, say something. Mm-hmm. Well, I think in suicide prevention, you've got you to gotta go one more step. Now do you see something, you've seen the behavior change, you've got to say something, you've confronted the individual, but you've got to do something. You can't just blow it off. If you see something and they say, yes, I have, you don't leave the person alone. You don't leave them with access to the means. You walk them basically into a therapy situation or an intervention situation with a professional. I mean, I, I can think of many cases where this has happened uh, in, in my uh, life here where I literally have stayed with somebody overnight. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the therapist's office opened at 8 o'clock. I had their cell phone. I was calling them at 7. I'll see you at the office at 8 o'clock. Here's what we're facing. I'm bringing him or her with me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no, I love that. I love that. that. See something, say something, and then you add on the – but, but then you got to do something. It's it's not enough just to uh, uh, to talk about it. And time may be of the essence because, like, you, you just talked yes. about that individual. Um, here they were. You know, everybody in the firehouse thinks that there's a big turnaround, and then six hours later you, you find them – uh, deceased and right. yeah, there is no, and I've often said that with recovery, the, when you, somebody finally tells you that they agree that they need treatment, they agree that they have a problem that needs to be dealt with. That means you have to deal with it right now, right? Yeah. Now. You don't, you don't to think about it overnight. Yeah, nope. exactly. And you don't, you yeah, you don't, you don't just, you just don't talk. Hey, I'll get to that when I get a chance. Nope. It's something that you, nope. you've got to do. I think that's so critical. Yeah. The, the other thing that I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot of talking about in, in, in the law enforcement world and in fire rescue, because I, I experienced as a young person in, in the field, is control your exposure. If you don't need to see something, hear something, or smell something, don't expose yourself. And, you know, back in the, when we were all young and you, know, you want to get all these experiences and all, you know, the, 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 you want to go to the, the toughest calls and the most extreme things. So you have, quote, get the experience, right? And the problem is you don't understand at that young age, you're not going to forget that stuff. And later on, that stuff can cause some real problems in your life. So I'm trying to teach these people as, as they're young and coming out, if you don't need to be exposed, don't be exposed. Now, that means like if you're a fire and it's a, a fatal fire and you're outside and you're not doing any inside firefighting, you don't go in to see the body. On a crime scene, and you're not the homicide detective or the, the um, uh, evidence technician that's going to be doing the photography and so forth, don't expose yourself to the sight of the body. I mean, it sounds simple, but it really does have a positive impact if you reduce your exposure. You know, it's, like, it's interesting. Like you made me you know, just think about something too. I, I've had. Uh, I know before I went into law enforcement. You know, I, I'm one of those people. I could watch all the police shows, the crime scene shows, the America's Scariest Police Chases. You know, all those types of things in movies. And then I can't pinpoint the date where I stopped doing that. But there was a certain <laughs> point where, like, I, I can't remember the last time I've watched any of those shows. I can't remember the time I've watched a movie about police, the FBI. Uh, I do watch, I'm a big history buff, so I do watch a lot of military history types of things, but um, 
movies with a lot of gore, things like that, gratuitous, gratuitous gore, things like that. Right. I, don't, I don't watch. And, uh, you know, it's funny because when I got into this profession, I would have, you know, lay people, so to speak, you know, people in the community that I knew, they would be like, well, hey, did you see this movie? And I'm like, no, I wouldn't see it. No, and I won't see that movie. And, and they're like, well, I think you'd like it. You know, being an FBI agent, I think you'd like this movie. And I'm like, no, <laughs> no, I'm not going to like that movie. Well, I'm not going to watch it. You, put- you know, and, and the thing is, it's like, I don't watch it because I, I think I subconsciously in my mind, I was doing what you just said. And that was, mm-hmm. why would I like in my free time, put myself in a situation where I'm exposed to things that I don't need to be exposed to. Why would I do that? Why? Right. You're practicing positive mental health. I mean, as if I don't see enough of that garbage at work, (laughs) really? Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go, Hey, I've got, you know, it's a Saturday afternoon. I think I'm going to watch a bunch of gore on television. Why would I do that? Oh, well, I've noticed, you know, I've, I've been a kind of a political groupie all my life and followed politics. And I found during the, um, what I'll call the the divisions politically uh, in the in the late 2019 into 20 mm. and the election and all that. I used to be a news hound. I mean, it was on 24 seven. Right. The only thing I listened to in my car was a, a you know uh, talk news. I shut it down. I turned it off. I started listening to to books, uh, audible books, and so forth just to get my mind off, <laughs> you know, one stressor in my life was all, all the, all of that. And at the same time, the whole, a lot of the, this, this police brutality stuff was going on and investigations and all this negativity about people that I care deeply about. Yeah. And I just found that if I didn't listen to some of the news coverage, I felt better. My mood was better. I slept better. <laughs> and it was well, you know, along with that, Ron, control. I will tell you this too, that and if you're a first responder and you're, you're listening to, this right now i will tell you uh, this is something that is preached early on in a this is actually is talked about uh, in the academy at least the academies that i went through and i heard it but i didn't practice it until later in my career and if you know if you could wind the time that the hands of time back in your career this is one of the things i would do differently is you've got to have something that you do outside of this job like like you i'm a political junkie too but it started to get old with me. Uh, the job yeah. started to get old. The, the job became very, very dark. And I found very quickly that I couldn't talk to anyone outside of the profession that about anything going on in the profession, those types of things. And I found that like my whole world started being sucked into that. My whole being was sucked into that world, and it became very, very unhealthy. If I have a piece of advice, and then we'll let you close out with, with uh, your advice, but my advice is... You've got to have something, it's a hobby, whether it's music, whether it's sports, whether it's physical fitness, whether it's, um, you know, the arts, fishing, whatever. You got to do it. You, you've got to have something that you do. And you have to have a, here's another thing too. Yeah, to me, you have to have a group of friends outside of this business that don't, are not in this business, don't care about the business, and don't want to talk to you about this business and have them as friends and, and stay tied to something other than this job because i will tell you this i am retired from this profession now and once you leave this profession i i know people talk about how this is one big family it's one big team i got it and i heard it and i heard it for years i'm telling you right now when you retire from this you're not part of that team anymore okay and when you when you retire from this job you are going to be thrown back into the rest of society and i got news for you folks most of the people outside of this profession don't care about it 
And you're going to be in a really lonely place at that point if you don't have something else that you're involved in, in another identity. You have to have an identity outside of this profession. And that's just something that I've learned. And, and the faster that you can do that, uh, the better, in my opinion. I don't, do you agree with that, Ron? Absolutely. Amen. I mean, it's basically the, the, the same thing in terms of positive mental health techniques. You're consciously making a decision to take care of yourself mentally and, and from a behavioral perspective. And in my case, I, I believe also from a spiritual perspective. Mm-hmm. We, focus, we focus both in law enforcement and fire rescue on physical fitness, on health and wellness of the physical side. We're now beginning after like five, six, seven years of world work at the command staff level of recognizing that the behavioral health and spiritual health is just as important as the physical fitness and physical health Mm -hmm. of an individual uniformed personnel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it mind, body, soul, mind, body, soul. It's everything. You got to take care of all that. And they, they all inter inter intertwine. They really do. And you got to take care of yourself. Guys, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint. If you want to be in this, if you want to be in this profession for the long haul, you got to take care of yourself. And so, Joran, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Now, let our listeners know about um, any ways that you can put out, you know, social media, websites, phone numbers. How can they get hold of you if they'd like to learn more about you and the work? Um, that you do? It, again, it's it's uh, Ron Perkins. My cell phone number is nine five four four nine four five one zero four. And my email is ron at PSC, which stands for Public Safety Chaplaincy, pschaplain.com. And uh, we're certainly here to talk with anyone. There's an organization, a website called firestrong.org, which also links to resources throughout the the U.S. relative to the behavioral health access programs. And if a firefighter particularly, I, I believe there's something like that for law enforcement, but I haven't actually been online to see that one. But uh, firestrong.org uh, is certainly a good organization on the fire side uh, that can link you up uh, if, with either peer support, people from other departments uh, throughout the country, uh, as well as uh, chaplains, mental health professionals, and so forth. But I, I think in closing, the resources are there. They need to search them out. And most departments have some kind of an EAP program. Frankly, some are better than others. But I would yeah. certainly encourage any command staff members, both from law enforcement and fire rescue communities, to really explore the behavioral access, uh, behavioral health access program model as integrating the chaplaincy programs, the peer support with the licensed mental health professionals and their CIS programs as a holistic response to prevent some of this critical incident stress uh, and and worse uh, behaviors that can come out of that. And I think as we talked about earlier, the, the Earlier, the see something, say something, do something if you think someone's going to hurt themselves. Oh, I love that. I love that phrase. I'm going to be using that from it's here on yours. out. <laughs> you got it. I'll be stealing it from you. Oh, no, it's great. Well, I, certainly, I certainly enjoyed our opportunity to visit and, and wish you all the best in, in 2022. It's a new year, a new start. Yeah, today is January 2nd. Hey, by the way, this is uh, the beginning of season three for the Recovery is Possible podcast. We were started towards the end of 2019. Um, so that was kind of like, a, I will say it's like two and a quarter seasons, but officially, you know, it, it's we're, we're going on a yearly basis. So we're into season three and I've really enjoyed having you on, Ron. And I, I want to get down there and see you. I was just down in Florida. Now, I wasn't yes. that far south. I, w- I got no <laughs> further south than Ocala, but uh, I got to get down there and see you soon. 
Well, let's keep in touch, Mike. Absolutely. And again, folks, you too, you too. And this episode has been sponsored by FHE Health. And so according to SAMHSA, first responders are 30% more likely to develop behavioral health conditions like PTSD. FHE Health specializes in getting first responders better and cleared for duty. Find out more at FHEHealth.com. And just like Ron uh, talked about there, getting the help and making... The ability to get help more aware uh, clearly based on the numbers that Ron was talking about has helped quite a bit. And so that's really, really good news for all of us. And so as always, I'd like to say I don't represent any group. I don't represent anyone other than myself. My only purpose in giving this information is to share with you what I've done because it's helped me and maybe it will help you too because there is help available out there for everyone. So if I've said anything that doesn't apply to you or if Ron has said something that doesn't apply to you then and you don't agree with it, then just discard it. But try, 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 try to take any information that you can use for yourself and help others as well. Because that's what we do in recovery. We help ourselves along the way and we help to impart the knowledge we've gained uh, to others as well. And so with that, please visit our Facebook page, which is Recovery is Possible, and our website, vanmeterwellnesssolutions.com. There's a lot of information, links, and articles that are on that website that uh, it may be helpful to you. So let me know if the, how I'm doing, and let me know if there's a topic you're interested in hearing about, because I'd love to hear from you. Hey guys, you can take care, and we will see you soon. <laughs>